It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in. We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation today. For those of you who tune in for our roundtable format on Saturdays, we will be continuing in that vein of thought over the next coming weeks as we discuss various issues taking place right here in Colorado and around the nation. But today we are going to put our eyes on the Holy Word of God. And that's where it really those eyes should be focused. And that's really where we should be. Because today's subject really falls in line with what we've been covering over the last few weeks, especially as we address what is occurring in law. As new laws are being passed, as new regulations are being passed daily, let's examine what the scriptures have to tell us on this, because in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 21, we're going to talk a little bit about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So if you have your scripture, you can turn with me as we examine this text. It's going to lead into a fascinating study. And so hold on tight. Let's see how much we can get through of this particular subject today. I believe we're only going to cover the first couple verses because uh, there's a lot to discuss here. Let's turn to Revelation 22 verses 1 to 2. Here's what we read. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree, tree were for the healing of the nations." Now, this is continuing. This is the final chapter of the book of Revelation. We have been in this study for over a year and a half. And this particular chapter now is summarizing. We've just covered some of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to highlight even further in this chapter, that it's all been about mineral and no vegetable. And now we're getting into some of the other elements of this new earth and this city, this new Jerusalem, and and describes what we read here just about this tree of life, that it is bearing fruit throughout all of the seasons. Now, this pure river, seems to be symbolic of the refreshment and sustenance that God provides, though it, like the city itself, is probably a literal river. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 and 14 on that. So this river proceeds from the throne that belongs to God and the Lamb. So this, this throne evidently stood at the head of the main street of the city that is forthcoming. And it looked, looking down the street, the throne appeared to be in its middle. And this is a life-giving stream from John chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and John chapter 7. So this lone river then signifies power, purity, and eternal life in this eternal city that has its constant source of life in God. So here in chapter 22, verse 2, John also saw this tree of life. Now, when Adam and Eve fell, they lost their access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 on that. So in this eternal city, the residents will have access to the tree of life there once again. And, and this tree is perpetually, not seasonally, in fruit. And it produces a new crop of fruit each month of the year. Now, evidently, the new creation will not have a lunar calendar since it will no longer be a moon. We just talked about that last, well, last couple weeks 
as we were in chapter 21, verse 23, but another type of calendar will now define the months. But it may also be the fact that because our minds may struggle with the idea of the atemporal state, this idea of eternity, that we simply can't wrap our minds around the idea of timelessness in our current finite state. And and, and although we'll always be finite by comparison to God, uh, the immortality that we'll experience, our mortal flesh and perhaps our mortal minds just can't really comprehend that. Even though we can say the words and dwell on the concepts, we really can't understand the fullness of that. The, The magnitude is too great, I believe, for our fleshly minds, even with spiritual discernment. So this may be written to help us understand perhaps as a baseline for the indescribable. So most fruit trees in the old creation, even what we bear, we understand today, they bear fruit only a few months each year at the most. But in contrast, God's blessings of fruitfulness will mark life in this new earth. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden could perpetuate life forever, if you remember. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 and 24. So evidently, that will be the function of this tree in the new earth as well, to sustain immortality. After all, the gift of God is eternal life, according to Romans 6, 23. And indeed, this fruit from the tree of life is a gift from God. So if you remember, had Adam and Eve stayed in the garden, even after the fall, they would have been able to eat of its fruit and live forever, even in a sinful state, according to Genesis 3, 22. And God cannot grant immortality in paradise to imperfection, or he couldn't live there. So Let's just take a moment to to examine this a little further. Perhaps it's just a detour. That's why I said we're, I think we're only going to cover the first couple verses for, for this particular discussion today, uh, because we need to look at the tree of life and, and all of the trees that were there, specifically even the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because how many trees were in the Garden of Eden? Well, there, there were a lot. But in the middle of the garden, there were these two specific trees that, that the scriptures call our attention to in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil was alongside the tree of life. So you'll notice here in Revelation chapter 22 that one of these trees is missing from the equation. It plants the seed that God has a plan all along. It was always for the tree of life to only be represented in this new kingdom. So what was this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Could it have been an apple tree? Let's just dive into that discussion here for a moment. It probably wasn't. The the apple idea actually comes from a Latin pun, where the Latin word malum also means evil or apple. So highly unlikely here that Genesis was written in in Hebrew, after all, that that we should place any reliability on a Latin pun. But some believe it was a fig tree. But Regardless, the the fruit of the tree is not identified. The Hebrew word here translated tree is indeed the same word used for ordinary trees in all 25 uses in the book of Genesis. So it's clearly an actual type of tree, not a metaphor, but an actual tree. And the Hebrew word for knowledge is the same word that's used for knowledge or awareness. Now, what about the words then for good and evil? Well, the word for good is the same one used throughout Genesis chapter 1 when God even pronounced that his creation was good and very good. And so again, there's nothing to indicate that we should look for an unusual meaning of the word good here. In fact, the, the word for evil is 
the same that's uh, even used here to describe the this tree of evil of Ra uh, that has a sense of misery, woe, grief, or harm. So the Hebrew words used to indicate that it was an actual tree with actual fruit it, it, and actually gave this knowledge of good and evil. There, there are no metaphors used there. It, it is a literal tree of knowledge of good and evil. So was giving knowledge, specifically knowledge of good and evil, a bad thing? One might naturally assume that a source of knowledge would be a good thing. So was a tree actually bad, or was God somehow trying to suppress knowledge from us? And we know that's not true. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 32, it says that you will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. So God is the source of knowledge of all truth, and he gives us truth, so he's not trying to suppress truth. But many people are not mature enough in the faith to handle the truth. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those by reason of use have their seasons, their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, what do we typically call a list of good and bad? If you, you know, if you were to look up a, a source that gives both a definition of good and evil, what would you call that? And you probably have the answer in your mind already. I, I think about when I go into my wife's kitchen, I call it her kitchen for a reason, uh, because she's got this plaque on the wall that says mom's rules. And it says, if I make it, you eat it. If I buy it, you wear it. If you make it messy or break it, you better clean it up before I find it or find you. If I say jump, you say how high. If you like to live, do as I say. Now, of course, it's a, it's a fun little plaque, but nonetheless, you get the idea. What do we call a list of something that's good and something that's bad? Well, we call that rules or laws. And the Torah is certainly the defining source biblically with 613 ordinances throughout the Torah, the first five books, also known as the Pentateuch, of the Bible. And most cultures have a written code based from its writings, and it's summed up as two words, the law. It is the list of promises and punishments. The law lists the good, the evil, and the punishments accordingly. I mean, how many laws do you think there are here in the United States of America? Well, according to many tracking organizations, and we talked about this last week on our Saturday roundtable format, uh, but according to many tracking organizations, there are 88,899 federal rules and regulations as sublines of some 4,312 laws. Now, annually, Congress will attempt to add some 2,400 new regulations. That's six and a half per day. Now, I had a picture that if I could just show you here, but unfortunately we're on the radio so you can't see it, uh, but there's a picture I have of going into Congressman Todd Aiken's office in Washington, D.C. several years back, and he had across his office laws that were just for those past few weeks, and the, the laws and their definitions reached all the way across his office, and then outside his office they were stacked all the way to the ceiling. And that was just the new laws that had come across his desk, even just in those first few months of the year. So this doesn't include all the individual state laws, which if we were to combine those, we'd have over 300,000 regulations and laws right here in just these United States. So thus, this tree of knowledge of good and evil could be called the tree of the law. Therefore, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they were in fact entering into a covenant with God under the law and therefore, everything changed. We'll talk more about how consumption was a very common thing throughout scriptures about enacting covenant agreements. But the law is binding, 
and with it came sin and death, according to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. So when did Adam sin? Before or after he ate the fruit of the tree? Well, in 1 John 3, 8, the devil was sinning from the beginning, and Ezekiel 28, 15 tells us that God thought of Satan as even perfect until iniquity was found in him. In Ezekiel 28, 2 and 6, both times God points out the evil desires of Satan's heart. Hosea 6, 7 says that Adam broke the covenant because he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and did not honor God by keeping it. So he entered into a contract with God that he did not keep. The tree didn't cause them to sin. Sin had already entered into the hearts of Adam and Eve to defy God. But once under the law, they were then aware of their condemnation for sin that they had given into. If we go to Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, we read, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking every opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. It is we who are not holy. See, Deuteronomy twenty-seven twenty-six says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. And Adam did not, as we know. So the law is perfect. John 1, 1 tells us that. Psalm 19, 7 to 10, and even Romans 7. But the law could not make anything perfect, nor save us, according to Romans 8. Its purpose was to define sin, according to 1 John 3, 4. So by keeping it, one could never attain perfection because it could never change the heart or the mind. But only through Jesus Christ can the heart condition be changed of Ephesians 3.17. This is why Christ pointed this out in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.27-30. The law said, do not commit adultery, but the Spirit of God convicts the soul that if you even look with lust at a woman, you have committed adultery already. So the only solution to sin is to transform the individual from the inside. The law structures the actions of men while the Spirit reforms the inward word part. So once they consumed of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the law, i.e. the definition of sin, went into full effect for everything on the earth. Now, although the Torah wasn't written until around 1440 BC, the Talmud describes the first 2,500 years as being the oral covenant of God, one that Cain and Abel knew very well. You go to Genesis 4-7, even Hebrews 11-4 discusses that. They knew knew what was sinful and what was acceptable before God because God defined it for them by way of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These oral commands have been referred to even as the Noahide Seven, four of which were reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 15, verse 20 and 29, 
with regard to the Gentile church. And these were summarized from what the, the oral traditions are, that there were some 211 oral laws, and these were implemented before the 613 were given to Moses. And this is why Abraham was honoring God with sacrifice and obedience because he understood the ways of God. And it was credited to him as righteousness, according to Romans chapter 4, verse 3 and 22. And that was 430 years before the Levitical laws were even written, according to Galatians 3.17. So that's why Enoch prophesied to those he called ungodly sinners prior to the flood in Jude 14 to 15. So what is there to repent of if you don't know what sin is? What is repentance if there's no knowledge of evil? So only God can make perfection. And Adam entered into covenant with God by way of the tree of the law, the knowledge of good and evil, and a state of sin. They had already sinned. They were already in rebellion at the time they signed the dotted line by eating of its fruit. They had already sinned. Because sin had already entered their hearts, as we read in Psalm 14 and 53, Proverbs 23, including 42 other scriptures on this, that sin is a condition of the heart of man. So perfection is the standard to dwell with God, according to Matthew 5.48 and Philippians 3.12. And once all of life was grafted into the tree of the law, that meant that anything less than perfect was flawed, and the only way to be perfect is through a kinsman redeemer, i.e. through Jesus Christ. So Adam chose the wrong fruit, and the whole world was separated from the tree of life as a result, and therefore grafted under the accountability of the tree of the law. Why? Why was Adam, how did his choice and Eve's choice, how did that affect all of creation? Well, it's because dominion of the earth was given to Adam. He, he was now the one the, given the, the ability to make the decisions on behalf of all of creation that God had given to him. Dominion of the earth was given to Adam in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. So we in, when he entered into that covenant with God by way of the tree of the law, all the earth was subjected under that covenant as well. So if Adam had eaten of the tree of life, Rather than the tree of law, we'd still be in a state of perfection. But he ate of the tree of the law while still in a perfect state. That we certainly wouldn't have been able to do that because he would have been Christ-like. It's still perfect at the signing of the contract, but that was impossible because Adam and Eve were instructed to not eat of it. So it was impossible for Adam to eat of the tree of the law in a perfect state. He was told not to eat of it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. So any consumption of it would already be in defiance and thus in a sinful state. So coming into agreement with God in a posture of sin already is where they were when they ate of that fruit. So man, through Adam, could never enter into contract with God by way of the law in a perfect state, nor fulfill its every ordinance. Only Jesus Christ could which is why he is called the second or the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 45. All dominion is then given to Jesus Christ, as we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, Matthew 28 and Ephesians 1. As the last Adam, he was able to enter into covenant agreement with God in a perfect state. Adam was not. This is why Christ will judge the whole earth and purge it all. Yes, even the creation itself, because all that will remain going into the new earth will be that which is grafted into the tree of life, which is symbolic 
of Jesus Christ himself. So everything under the curse of Genesis 3, plants, animals, all of it, this is why God makes it all new by purifying with fire, according to 2 Peter 3.10. They, Adam and Eve, did not know of death until they entered into covenant with God by way of the law. This is why God said that they would surely die, according to Genesis 2.17. The law is the law of sin and death, after all, according to Romans 8.2. It, it defined what sin was and brought death and, and that is what the tree of knowledge of good and evil it really was in its entirety. So covenant is of a Latin origin. It means convenire. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is berit or berit hadashah, as we see with the Old Testament. It's translated as covenant. And it often involved breaking into two parts with two responsible parties. So that's why the breaking of the fruit produced a covenant between man and God. And before sin entered the world, it was a covenant without blood, just like the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 2. So because the law is a covenant of sin and death, it could only be fulfilled by perfection in death, i.e. Christ. Someone had to die that was perfect in order to fulfill the demands of the covenant of the law. So covenants in the spiritual world, both with life and death, often involve consuming or taking things into the body. We see that in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 26, that the priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. And this is in a when they are making uh, atonement on behalf of the peoples, they're offering sacrifice unto Almighty God, that they would eat even a portion of it. In fact, in Leviticus 7, we see that the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the fellowship offering all involved consumption. In Ezekiel 3, 2-4, and Revelation 10, 9-11, in both times we see prophecy being given and the prophet being told to, to eat of what is revealed, that it would transform the man from the inside out. In Ezekiel 3, 2-4, he says, So I opened my mouth, he fed me this scroll. Fed him the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I am giving to you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And then we see in Revelation 10, 9-11, so I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is why God cares about how we treat our bodies. After all, we are his temple, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Whatever comes in can defile the body. So all of these things we take into our bodies will change based on how deep our relationship with God is. So Adam became the acting agent on behalf of the world. And here's the real mind bender. Did Satan ever eat of the fruit? Satan wanted to destroy Jesus, which only fulfilled 355 prophecies and ended up saving man. God used Satan to fulfill his purpose of redeeming his people. But if Satan never ate of the fruit of, the fruit of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, then he is not in covenant with God under contract or under the law. And that means that Satan could not be punished to the condemnation of the law if he was not in covenant with God under its terms. So here's the mind bender. Could God, God could have sent Satan to any other planet 
He, he could have sent him to Jupiter or Mars or anywhere, but no, he, he chose to send him to the earth. Then God put the covenant of the law and the covenant of life in the garden. And then he gave all authority, not to Satan, he gave all the authority to man, already knowing that man would fall and take on the take and put into effect the covenant of the law. And that means that everything on the earth would be under man and thus subject to the law that he would be partaking of. And thus by eating of the fruit and bringing all of the earth under the covenant of the law, man brought a curse on everything on the earth that would bring judgment, i.e. eternal death, to all, including Satan and his followers, i.e. demons and all. This is why God chose to redeem man in Romans 11.32 and Hebrews 2.14-17, but not Satan or his demons because it was necessary to bring all the spiritual realm and physical realm under the written code and authority of the law in order to destroy everything that was not grafted in to Jesus Christ, i.e. the tree of life. So you could see we could not save ourselves under the law because we're imperfect. So this is why God sent Jesus Christ to the earth to defeat its curse, according to Hebrews 2, by enacting an addendum, if you will, and to provide a new and better covenant, according to Hebrews 8, 6, a covenant of life through him. So Christ became lower lower than the angels, he came under the law, and then he was elevated once again by prevailing over it. That means that Satan, trying to destroy man, actually brought himself condemnation and the world under condemnation by coming under the law. So here he thought he was crafty and he was going to one-up God, and God used his rage to actually fulfill his purposes. So Christ is called the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And that's all because of the feast of first fruits. But now Jesus Christ being called the the first fruits is symbolic even of the tree of life that was giving first fruit a life-giving covenant with man that had been previously rejected by Adam. So the tree of life therefore represents Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Because he tells us so. In John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the life. In John 15, 5 to 8, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Man could not eat of the tree of life in a sinful state until atonement was made for them legally. So eating of the fruit of the tree of life may be why Jesus wanted us to eat of his, his very body and drink of his blood as we observe communion in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. So eating of the tree of life is very symbolic to this covenant, this communion that we partake of. So we partake of a symbolic nullification of the ordinances of the covenant of the law and take on the covenant of life as Romans 8, 1 to 2 tells us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So anyone who does not enter into agreement with the covenant of life by way of Jesus Christ, they are still under the covenant of the law and they cannot fulfill it and thus are doomed to death. 
but we are grafted in to the tree of life. According to Romans chapter 11, we are now heirs according to the promises given to Abraham, according to Galatians 3, Galatians 4, and Romans 8. And he tells us this in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to this promise. How awesome is that? I hope this has been an encouragement to you. That concludes today's message, and we have so much more to cover in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. So tune in again next week. If you are looking for a fellowship to come and worship and go deeper into God's Word together, come check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends.